Welcome to the Chris Rawl Show. I am Chris Rawl. There are so many things going on in the world of sports. My brain almost can't handle it. My emotions definitely cannot handle it. There's literally nothing that I can handle at this present moment in time. However, I am putting out a newsletter once per week on Wednesday morning until I perish which will probably be within the next two weeks if the Colorado Avalanche lose, and in the next two months if the Colorado Avalanche win the Stanley Cup. So, as an honor to my impending death, please go to chrisrawl.com. Click on the subscribe button. Put your email address in. Wednesday morning, something will hit your inbox. This last week, I wrote about the Suns and the Mavericks and the surprise that that Game 7 incurred within me. Next week, who knows what I'm going to be writing about. It could be the PGA Championship. It could be the Stanley Cup playoffs. It could be the NBA playoffs. Only time will tell. So go do that. Now, let's get on to today's show, where I talk about the necessary layers of a championship team. Now, close your eyes. Ernest Hemingway once described going broke as happening gradually, then suddenly. Uh, it's a line that I really like from his book called The Sun Also Rises. Uh, it can be applied to many things in life. It's just a really good window into the passing of time or the unlocking of an achievement that is, it's usually ignored until it's right in front of your face. How many times do you hear people say, oh my gosh, look at my kid. I feel like the last five years have passed and now my kid's in kindergarten and I didn't even know that that occurred. I remember I was out of high school like probably six years and I remember one day somebody's like, when did you graduate? And I'm like, oh, not too long ago in 2004. And they were like, it's 2010. I'm like, yeah, you're kind of right. It's weird that I still think of myself as being briefly out of high school, but it's been a long period of time relative to that. Again, you can talk about this in almost any way. It's just a lot of things go unnoticed. It's gradual, gradual, gradual. And then suddenly it's there punching right in the face and you go, oh my, what just happened here? A really good example of this within my own life is going from bad to good in the world of golf. It is most definitely not a sudden experience. Anybody who has gone through that transition will tell you that. A lot of hours and years, a lot of work, a lot of just practice and putting yourself in position to get brutalized again and again and again by the game, by people around you, spending money, losing money, all of those kinds of things. The beginning of my golf career, I'm very bad. And, I, and the golf bug bites me and I'm going, okay, how do I get better? And I'm thinking this in my own mind, you know, because me, the big macho guy, I go, I just, I, I'm sure I can get better at this. And all, all I need to do is just Lean into the things that I'm good at and go from there and I'll be good in golf in no time. I'll be good as these people around me. It'll be easy. And the natural tendency of my mind, and I think this is the natural tendency of human minds in general, is to really lean into the things you are good at. That's a natural way for the mind to think. You don't sit there and go, what are all the things that I'm bad at in life? Let's go and try and be better at them. You go, oh, I'm, I'm gifted at mathematics in high school. And so I take more math classes or I'm more gifted in this area. And so I lean to try and play guitar because I'm musically inclined, things like that. It's the natural tendency, right? And within the world of golf, once you start getting the ball off of the ground, period, the natural tendency is, okay, yeah, I'm not that far away from having a really good swing. And, and I want the perfect swing. I want to be able to bash a driver. I want to be able to flush an iron. 
hit these high majestic shots that go far and I can probably obtain that pretty quickly. That's the natural inclination for a beginner at golf. It's why you see all of these people out there on the range bashing and bashing and bashing and hitting it and hitting it and hitting it. And the hope is, oh yeah, I'm going to have a really good swing probably pretty soon. That's the natural tendency. It's how you think. So I'm sitting there going, how do I get better? Well, I probably should just do that. Let's go and try and bash away. And I can already hit my driver off the ground. So I just need a little couple tweaks and I'll be in business, right? Now, this was untrue. This was very far off in my estimation. And luckily, I didn't do that for very long at all because I had people who are really good at golf around me who cared about me and my want to improve. And so they said, well, Chris, let's hold on a second. Let's think about this logically. Because in golf, you are only as good as your worst skill. That's a fact of this game. A lot of people don't grasp that till they played a lot more. We're going to give this to you now in your infancy. And so if you think about it logically, at the time, I'm a 35 handicap, let's say, and these people are scratch golfers and they're going, well, if you think about just from a logical score perspective, you're shooting 107 and I'm shooting a 72. Do you really think that a lot of that separation is occurring off of the tee? You know, not that I have a great driver, but let's say I'm puffing it out there, 240 yards, but it's in play. And okay, yeah, great. They're hitting it over 300 yards and it's further up there and that makes life easier, but that's not enough to justify 35 shots of separation. So then they go, okay, let's think about getting the ball into the hole. How does that occur? Well, usually with your putter. So let's start there. How many putts are you taking around? And so then I start looking at it through that lens and I'm going, oh yeah, I'm three putting a lot of holes and I'm four putting holes and I'm five putting holes. And you guys are one putting holes and two putting holes and you're very rarely three putting holes. So now it's starting to click and then they're going, okay, and what happens when I hit it in a bunker versus when you hit it in a bunker? And I go, well, I leave it in the bunker and then I hit it out. If I do hit it out, then it's 40 feet from the flag and then I'm probably three putting and they go, correct. And what am I doing from a bunker? And I go, well, you're hitting it out on the first try and usually within 10 feet. And sometimes you make that putt and sometimes you don't, but the main point is you're not butchering it. And they go, correct. So now I'm starting to understand more and more and more and more. So it really starts to hammer home. Okay, I want to get better at golf. I need to improve in the areas that I'm truly atrocious at. That's from 100 yards in it. I got to work on my short game first and go backwards. So that leads to a, a lot of, lot of practice, a lot of years, <laughs> a lot of work. Just hours and hours spent over at, at the time it was East Bay and Provo, just over on their practice green area. Go and put some earbuds in and chip and chip and chip and chip and go and put a bunch of balls around a hole five feet away and putt and putt and putt and putt over and over and over. It's just gradual. It's slow. It's incremental. And that's a different thing. You know, I'm doing this and I go, okay, I feel good about how I'm chipping. I feel good about how I'm putting. Well, I got to take it on the course every day. And that's a whole different experience. That's a very different thing. Hitting a bunch of chips close to a hole on a practice screen is very different from when you have one chance to hit one ball by a hole in a chip that you've never had because each individual golf round, it's always different. It's a very different experience. And then money's on the line. And then I'm in a tournament and all of these are different experiences. Hitting a bunch of five foot putts around a hole on a practice screen with no pressure, with music in. And I'm stroking them and I'm going, yeah, I just made five in a row and I'm feeling great and I'm gonna go ball out today. Then I'm on the course 
and I have one opportunity to putt one five-footer on the first hole, and I got to read the break correctly, and I have to make the correct stroke. It's a very different experience. So it's just gradual, it's gradual, it's gradual, and I'm doing this all the time. And I'm sensing I'm getting better, and my scores are starting to reflect that, but just over the course of years, I still view myself as a bad golfer, what I was in the beginning. And I'm always looking at the people around me and I'm going, oh, these people are so much better than me. They're just, oh, they're so much out of my league. And then I remember there was just this brief dawning. I couldn't even tell you the day, but it was just, I remember having a conversation because my scores were relative to my peers. They were within the same realm. And and I was talking with somebody and they're like, dude, you've, it's incredible how much improvement you've made in this game. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, thank you, thank you. But I'm always envisioning that or thinking of that through the mind of what I was in the beginning and finding it really hard to break out of that mindset. Me as the underdog, me as the beginner golfer, all that kind of stuff. And they're like, yeah, it's crazy. You know, like you're as good, you're as good as all these good people. They're pointing out, you know, this person, this person, you shoot the same scores as them. And this was the sudden breakthrough from a mental standpoint because all of this gradual incremental progress It's years, again, years and years in the making. Kind of manifests itself in this sudden awakening of just, oh, this is really weird because I consider all these people to be good at golf. And if you just look at my scores on a day-to-day basis relative to them, it's pretty much the same thing. So does that mean that I am good at golf, right? It was a really revelatory moment for me. Somebody who uh, the game demands confidence. And that's something that all beginner golfers struggle with. It's something that I've struggled with. It's something that I still struggle with, depending upon the day. And so this was another breakthrough of, okay, maybe my confidence has been one of my worst skills in the past, but now I'm feeling a lot better about that. All right. I can really lean into the mental side of the game of golf as a strength, which it has become for me. So you start to get the understanding through the Chris Rawl parable of golf that just to progress to get better at something, You have to add layers to what you are good at. Everybody starts with something. Doesn't matter if it's just a skill, it's a game, it's a a different facet of life. We all have things that we're good at. Uh, Within the world of sports, and especially now that we're expanding it out, as I start to think about the Stanley Cup playoffs and the NBA playoffs, and I start to think about the building of championship contenders, I point out and say, well, you follow this exact same process. It's stuff that happens gradually, and then it's suddenly. It's this concept that you have to add layers to what you are good at. You cannot be a one-trick pony within the playoffs, within the postseason. You just can't. And that's a learning curve. That's an arc. Because teams at the start of their championship contention window, they want to do the thing they are good at. They want to be me at the beginning of golf and say, I'm going to just get really good with my driver, and I'm going to kick everybody's ass. And then slowly but surely they realize, no, that's not what's going to happen. And that's not even what needs to happen in order for you to get better at this thing. Teams at the start of their championship contention window, they come into the playoffs with a really logical thought going back to natural tendencies. Because they say, well, we murdered teams in the regular season. We were one of the best teams in the entire league this regular season. So let's just lean into what we did then. And why won't it be the same in the playoffs? It's a really logical thought. But those of you who have been listening to me over the last month and change know the playoffs are a very different beast. 
Just because it's basketball does not mean it is the same as the regular season. Just because it is hockey does not mean it is the same as the regular season. Those are very different realms. It's the same idea as putting a five-footer on a practice screen with earbuds in versus putting a five-footer on the 18th hole with some break, with your heart pounding and money on the line. Those are very different things. And you got to learn how to exist within that realm. For me in golf, it's a long learning curve. For these championship contenders, it's kind of the same thing. Sometimes it's years and years. Sometimes it's a decade of just pounding your head against a wall. Go ask the Washington Capitals. They had a decade of playoff heartbreak and understanding how to properly layer a team before they finally broke through in 2018 and won the Stanley Cup. Playoffs are a different beast. I just can't preach that enough. Now, within these two sports, the NBA and the NHL, there are two teams specifically that I want to point out is the shining examples of this particular idea that remain, that have championships in their past and have really leaned into, hey, we're not going to be a one-trick pony. We actually cannot be a one-trick pony if we want to continually be successful in the postseason. On the basketball side, there are four teams left. The Miami Heat, the Boston Celtics, Dallas Mavericks, and the team that I would point out and say, right now, this is the North Star of layering within basketball, Golden State Warriors. Because you go back to the start of their arc, and in 2014, they're a fun team. Actually, even a couple years before that, when they have Mona Ellis, they're a league pass team that I loved. They weren't a winning basketball team. It was Steph with injured ankles off and on and Mona Ellis. Backcourt that all they wanted to do was shoot and run and play no defense. And they were an incredibly fun watch. They were fun to bet on, bet the overs. They weren't a winning basketball team. 2014, they make the playoffs. They've traded Mona Ellis. They're starting to try and say, all right, from a team building perspective, Maybe we need a little more versatility. Maybe we need some other things that we have not had in the past. They make the second round of the playoffs. They have a great opening series win over the Denver Nuggets. Round two, they go against a staple of basketball for a full decade. Actually, well beyond that, a decade and a half at that time. San Antonio Spurs. Team that truly understands how to win in the postseason. <laughs> and Golden State wins game one and they're filled with so much hope. And then San Antonio snuffs them out. They're moving on. And I think that was a point that things start to make sense a little bit more in their mind as they point at their peers and say, what is different? What is different about them compared to us? Why are they winning in the postseason and we are not? What are the things that we can improve gradually? So they go into 2015 and they're a really fun basketball team and they're really good record-wise in the regular season. But there's the big knock on them. They're just a, they're a jump shooting team. It's Steph and it's Clay and they're shooting a bunch of threes and they're running around and we, this can't win in the playoffs. We've never seen stuff like this before. TNT, the TNT crew would get on after every Warriors game and Barkley do his Barkley routine and they do the crusty ass old basketball thing. You can't be a jump shooting team and win. We've never had that in the history of basketball. And that was a lot of people's thoughts. Oh, this is fun. This is cool. But how are you going to make this work in the postseason? Now, what we didn't understand and what we understood by the time the 2015 playoffs were over and they had beaten the Cavs in the NBA Finals and won the championship, was that this process of gradual improvement suddenly was there. The forgotten layer of this team, one that truly manifested itself in the playoffs, was defensively. Because the death lineup, as it was constructed, it was awesome on offense. We all loved it. It was so fun. It was Steph and Clay and Harrison Barnes and Andre Iguodala and Draymond. They're moving around. They're cutting five really smart basketball players. Two transcendent shooters. 
one who just by virtue of being on the court, Steph Curry just creates space for everybody. And it's so fun and it's so fun. But what we were kind of missing and what really crystallized starting in the playoffs and over the course of the following years was the defense that they could play with this particular lineup, which is the true layer to every championship contender. It is a must in the NBA. It just is. San Antonio Spurs, great example. It's one, it's a layer that younger and less experienced teams really struggle to understand and especially to lean into. Because in the regular season, people aren't going to be there on Twitter going, oh, check out this incredible team rotation over the course of four different picks and five passes. And look how everybody was connected on a string. Or look at this sweet understanding on the back line by Draymond Green where he senses this is happening and he's both guarding the person with the ball, but hedging against the person behind him. There's not a lot of that that's celebrated on a day-to-day basis. Regular season, it's look at these crazy threes. Look at these dunks. Look at this crossover where their dude fell down. Uh, In the playoffs, the stuff that maybe is not as sexy is really going to take you to the next level. It's going to help you advance to the next round. That's the defensive stuff. The stuff that's not going to be as sexy on a highlight but as you watch it over the course of the game, you go, oh, this really makes sense. You look at some of the younger teams around the NBA or just less experienced teams as it pertains to playoff success. And I point to my hometown team and say, yeah, the Jazz and Donovan Mitchell, they're really going through this. They've seen the difference between the regular season and the postseason. They have seen what good defense looks like, and it is not them. They've seen what hustle looks like on defense, and it is not Donovan Mitchell. They have a choice to make. It's the Hawks with Trey Young. It's even a team like the Brooklyn Nets this year with two experienced championship players who have won championships, Kyrie and KD. Their defense was complete shambles. Some of that was on them. Some of that was on their roster, but they just had no answer whatsoever for anything. You cannot win without defense. It's a necessary layer in the NBA. You look at the past decade of NBA champions and every single one checks the box. Milwaukee Bucks last year. Oh yeah, absolutely. Giannis and Drew Holiday and Chris Middleton and Brooke Lopez and incredible team defense. Oh, the Toronto Raptors, Kawhi Leonard and Pascal Siakam and Marcus Gasol and Kyle Lowry, like some of the smartest, most gifted defenders of their time. LA Lakers, 2020, absolutely. LeBron, AD, the best defense in basketball that season. Bunch of years with the Warriors, bunch of years with the Heat and LeBron and Wade, the incredible defense. San Antonio Spurs, Tim Duncan, one of the greatest defensive players of his entire generation of all time. Much less throw Kawhi out at the best perimeter player, throw Danny Green out there. Just all superb defensive teams who really embraced that side of the ball because they saw their championship predecessors before them do that. Makes sense, right? Young teams, it's not your natural tendency to go, I'm just going to buckle up and try and draw a charge, play after play after play. I'm going to learn through repetition and practice how to switch with my teammates, how to verbalize what's occurring so we're not hung out to dry in a way that the Jazz and the Hawks and the Nets were in the playoffs this year. So now we go back to the Warriors and they're, they've been reborn as a championship contender post Durant. And that's happened for a lot of reasons. Jordan Poole, great reason. Him going from a G leaguer into what looks like an NBA all-star is pretty big. Andrew Wiggins, career resurgence, really fits that switchable style of play that the Warriors like. Clay Thompson returning, obviously not at the same level, nowhere near that, but he still has given them a boost. But I keep going back to the other side and I go, this team is here because they are smart and they are sound on defense yet again. Draymond is back to being defensive player of the year caliber Draymond. 
They got a lot of buy-in from a lot of different players. They got a lot of switchable people. And I go watch a, a game like the first game against Dallas. When they run them out of the building, they win by 26, I want to say. And I go, go look at their game on defense against Luka. Fresh off of just that annihilation of the Phoenix Suns in game seven and Golden State. They're in his face on every play. They're making it hard. They're making it hard. And sometimes Luka's going to score 40 on you even against that. Ask the Clippers the last two years when they were playing great defense against him and he still was getting 40-point triple-doubles. He's a phenomenal offensive player. But you got to make it hard. So they're in his face on every play, every play. And there was noticeable stuff going on with Jalen Brunson that really stood out as I was thinking about this podcast. That's probably lost in the shuffle. It's not really sexy. And I was noticing it as the game was going on. I'm like, oh, they're really playing him well. And then after the game, people who are much smarter than me cut it up and wrote about it and said, you know what? A very interesting tactic that Golden State brought to the table that had buy-in from everyone on their roster, including defenders like Kevin Looney, who you wouldn't ever point out and say, this is a total stopper. They said, all right, one of Jalen Brunson's tendencies is he does not want to shoot three-pointers off the dribble. He's a great catch-and-shoot three-point shooter, but he has a tendency. He doesn't want to walk into threes. He just doesn't. He wants to, especially when a switch occurs, get into the paint and do what he did against the Jazz and just obliterate them within the restricted area, within the 10-foot area, draw the defense in and kick it out to somebody else, all that kind of stuff. And Golden State recognized this on film and coached their players and got buy-in and said, okay, we're going to guard him accordingly. So when switches occur and we have a player like Looney on him, just play defense against him like he's Giannis. He's five feet behind the arc and he's starting to walk and come into you. You're going to be five feet behind inside the arc because we're not worried about you stepping into a three. You don't want to do that. You want to get into the key. And so there are a bunch of different possessions where Dallas executed what they wanted. They got a switch onto Brunson in a manner that they wanted. They go, okay, sweet. Now we can have you roast them. And instead, Golden State, from a team perspective and from an individual perspective, was sitting there going, eh, we trust that we're going to be able to defend this properly. And they did. Little stuff like that. Again, it's only sexy to the nerdiest of nerds, but it is a necessary ingredient. One of the main ones, if you're serious about winning a championship. And to the credit of all of the teams that remain, I've seen incredible strides on this side of the ball. The Mavericks and the Celtics are two young teams that I really think it's starting to crystallize in their mind. Value of defense and what it takes from a team and from an individual perspective. These are two sub-500 teams at the turn of the calendar this year. They took off, and a lot of that was because of their defense. Boston, it made a lot of sense because I looked at their roster and go, yeah, all these guys, they should be good at defense. The Mavericks, I kind of thought was smoke and mirrors, honestly. And I'm going, I don't, there's not a lot of great individual defenders. Okay, Finney Smith, yeah, great. Bullock, okay, sure, yeah. Maxi Kleber, all right, yeah, fine, whatever. But through buy-in, through hustle, through Jason Kidd coaching, it's really started to dawn on me as I watched them against the Jazz. Completely take away the Jazz three-point attempts. And I go, huh, maybe the Jazz are just bad and weird. That doesn't seem that far-fetched. And then I watch them against Phoenix, one of the best offensive teams in basketball. And by the end of that series, especially in Game 7 when they're just snuffing the life out of them, I'm going, holy mackerel, this is a good defensive team. It's starting to make sense in their minds. Miami, they're an older team. They're a lot more experienced, but they truly understand this. Maybe it means they're going to win a championship this year. I'm recording this before Game 2 of Boston, Miami. So as of this recording, they're up 1-0 in the Eastern Conference Finals, but they really understand that side of the ball and how far it can take you. I mean, they made the NBA Finals in 2020 on the strength of Jimmy Butler on offense and just incredible defense. 
They basically remade that same formula this year with slightly different pieces, but it's Jimmy Butler on offense and it's a total team buy-in on defense. And yeah, you can knock some of the way that all of these teams play, but especially these three. You go, all right, yeah. I mean, all three of you can still get kind of clunky in the half court when you're playing offense, but I go, all right, that's, sometimes that's the way of life. You know what I know for a fact? That particular flaw can be absorbed with awesome defense and the correct star power on offense. Think the 2020 Lakers with LeBron and AD, a team that going into the playoffs, they had phenomenal defense, but uh, if we're nitpicking at contenders, they don't have a great half-court offense. They're not a great three-point shooting team. You really need that in today's offensive basketball. Then they're winning game six against Miami, and we're understanding, oh, well, they have the best defense in basketball, and they have two stars that can hack out in the half-court everything that is necessary. That's the, the formula for these other three. Mavs, Luka, a lot of this is going to be on your plate on offense, and then the rest of us will worry about defense. Celtics, a little bit more team-oriented, but still, it's going to be Tatum on offense. It's going to be this defense. Miami, it's going to be Butler. It's going to be defense. To win, you must have layers. And much like Hemingway says, you know, it's this gradual thing. I couldn't tell you the moment that I'm watching the Mavericks and I'm just like, they're good at playing defense, but here we are. And I'm going, whatever gradual improvements you have made over the course of the last few seasons, and especially this season, they're manifesting. Boston Celtics, you were a complete shit show. January 1st. And suddenly I'm sitting here going, I think they're the best team in basketball. Maybe they won't win because Miami boa constrictors them or they have some injury, whatever, but... This is an incredible gradual improvement that is now suddenly in front of my face. The NHL has a similar dynamic and one that aligns nicely for the recording of this particular show because they have a team remaining that I would point out and say, this is the North Star of layering in hockey in present dates, the Tampa Bay Lightning. Three years ago, they are on the wrong end of probably the most stunning playoff upset of my lifetime. They lose, they're swept in the first round by the Columbus Blue Jackets. They've not won a Stanley Cup at that point in time, despite being one of the best regular season teams for the last five plus years. And a lot of people go, they're not going to win now. They never will. Just, it's not clicking in their mind. They're a one trick pony. They just want to, they want to play. They want to, they're committing the cardinal sin. Tampa, they are fast and they are skilled. And they want to play track meet hockey because of that, which again, that's logical. That's, it feeds into the way the human brain works. You want to do what you're good at. So Tampa says, well, we should be able to just completely outskill teams and skate around them because we have so many incredible players and we're winning 60 games in the regular season every year. We should just go do this in the playoffs. And it took years and years and years of heartbreak. And I think there was a turning point that next season where Tampa took a long look at itself and said, okay, we really are truly starting to understand what the playoffs are. We're really starting to understand you cannot be a one-trick pony. You have to have layers. And it's going to be gradual. We've been gradually working on that for years. And it might take even more years. Again, go back to the Washington Capitals and ask them how fun that decade was pre-2018. So Tampa says, we're fast, we're skilled. We can play track meet hockey, but 
a lot of times teams are going to be able to take that way in the playoffs. So what are we at that point? How do we add to that? How do we ramp up the importance of special teams, lean into our penalty kill and our power play? How do we understand the dynamics of playoff hockey, which is you don't know what each game is going to be. You don't know what each series is going to be. So you have to understand when is the correct time to ramp it up? When is the correct time to slow it down? That's a really interesting dynamic that some teams struggle to grasp until they have garnered the necessary experience. Just the simple thing of how do you win a grubby ass playoff game? That's a question that is really hard for a lot of hockey teams because teams that make the playoffs, they're inevitably going to have skill and they will have gotten there because, oh yeah, we bombed this team out 8-2 in the regular season and this month we were skating all around and doing this and doing that. And then suddenly you're in the playoffs and things are tightening up and the refs are swallowing their whistles somewhat and you're going, uh, there's a lot less chances and there's a lot less transition opportunities. Well, what are we going to do now? Tampa had to learn. I would go back and point to a game like Last year's game seven against the New York Islanders in the conference finals game to get into the cup finals. The Islanders want to play as low event hockey as possible. They lean into grubby ass playoffs. They're the stereotype. They're like the Dallas stars. So Barry Trotz is their coaching him. Hell of a coach. And they're going, yeah, Tampa has more talent than us. Who cares? We're going to put every game in the mud and every game is going to be two one. And we're going to be content with that. And we're going to say, all right, You get 20 shots, we get 20 shots, and we'll trust that Matt Barzell finds the right time to put one home or Anders Lee does or somebody. Game seven, Tampa says, that's fine. Uh, The team that a year prior, everybody's going, you just want to play track meet hockey. They're going, no, no, no. We're completely fine and content and comfortable beating the New York Islanders at their own game, which is what game seven was. It was low event hockey. It was Tampa saying, all right, from the start, we're willing to just buckle down and trust in Vasilevsky. And we'll trust that our talent, which is better than yours, will be the one who puts home the goal, which is what happened. You got to layer. You have to learn. This is a process. Uh, I would point to round one, game seven against Toronto. It's just another thing. If you're a team that has not yet won, that you can look at and you can glean things from. And I would go, look, Tampa in that game, they're injured. They're running on fumes. They've won the last two Stanley Cups. They just looked tired as hell. Kutrov had a fever of 102 in that game, it was reported. Braden Point gets injured, does not come back. You're down two of your very best players. You're trucking out these lines with P.E. Belmar and Corey Perry and Nick Paul and just saying, can one of you give us a goal? And in that game, they said, all right, Nick Paul, you magically appeared as a Game 7 hero. You gave us two goals, and now we're comfortable buckling down the hatches and playing boa constrictor hockey against one of the best offensive teams that existed this season. And you go and watch the third period of that game. And it was shot suppression. It was five people in every shooting lane. It was Vasilevsky making saves whenever a puck got through. And it was Tampa Bay winning in a way that if you rewound three years ago, you wouldn't even recognize. You go, wait, what? Who is that team? The Tampa team that I know is going to win 7-2. They're going to score three amazing goals on the power play. They're going to score three more crazy goals in transition. That's just how Tampa wanted to play hockey. They wanted to lean into what they're good at. Now Tampa has won cups and continues to build upon that experience. And Tampa's just good at everything because they've realized, oh, you know what? Much like golf, you kind of are as good as your worst skill. It's a weird thing. It's really prominent within the playoffs, but you can only be as good as your weakest link. Go and watch a basketball game 
That's what playoff basketball is. It's just the searching out of what the weakest link on the court is and picking it again and again and again. That's how LeBron has won four championships and played in a million different NBA finals. Hockey, it follows a similar pattern, but not to the same degree. But what's your worst skill? Okay, we're going to go and try and exploit that. Or what's the one thing that you want to do? We're going to take away. So what are you going to do now? So now they're against the Florida Panthers. Um, and again, I'm recording this before game two. So as of this recording, Tampa leads the series 1-0. And I'd point at game one of this particular series and say, this is another example. If you were a team who has not won, look at what Tampa has done over the last two years and change. And you can learn a lot about how to properly layer in the playoffs. Game one, it was about special teams and it was about shot suppression. They don't have Braden Point. They say, all right, that's fine. We still have skill. Kucherov is now healthy, fully. Looked like dynamite Kucherov. He's going to generate something because he always does in every game. In game one, it was just turning Aaron... Actually, it was drawing an incredible penalty against Mackenzie Wieger to set up a power play that he then turned Aaron Ekblad inside out on and just threw a pass right through the crease that Corey Perry's tapping home. So you still have that skill, but... They're not going to overwhelm you with just line after line after line of it. So it was, all right, let's get some power play goals, which they did. And now let's just play buckle down the hatches hockey. They did. Camp in that game, I believe at five on five, they had 22 shots on goal and less than 10 high danger scoring chances. That's a complete different style of hockey game than Florida played throughout the entire season. So with Tampa, you go, all right, you still have the skill. You still got Hedman. You still got Kucherov. But the most important aspect of this team and why they have won back-to-back cups and are charging at a third is how many different ways they are willing and able to beat you. That is the postseason. That's how you win. So flip to the other side. And I would contrast that with where Florida is at. Florida is, Florida is a really fun, incredible, talented hockey team. They won the President's Trophy this year as Highest point total in the entire league. They were one of the very best offensive teams of the last three decades. They were a generational offensive team. However, starting with game one of the Capital Series, who they played in round one, they were immediately out of their element. You saw that from the very get-go. Because the playoffs, it was, it's going to be a different beast, right? So they're able to win that series in six games, but they were actually like pretty lucky to do so. I mean... Washington's up 2-1 in the series. They have an empty netter in game four that bangs off the side of the cage that would have sealed the game. Instead, Florida scores with an empty net, wins the game in overtime. Game five, Washington's up 3-0. Florida comes storming back to win that game. Game six, Washington's up in the third period, blows that lead, loses in overtime. Now they're playing a team that is better, has significantly better goaltending, and also possesses to a higher degree, the understanding of how to win in the playoffs in different ways. So this is a really big test. This is a very interesting series for a lot of reasons, but this particular dynamic is one. It's the team that has been there that knows how versus the up-and-comer right at the start of their cup window. They're young, they're dynamic, they're fun. I'm rooting for them because I just like that style of hockey and I want to see it succeed, but they're going to have to flush out what they can do. Go back and watch game one again. And this whole postseason, the power plays dried up. They're over going into game two. They've, I believe they're over 21 on the power play. Incredible with that amount of talent. But 
What's been even freakier as I watch them is their transition opportunities have been minimized, first by the Capitals, then by Tampa in game one. And you're seeing a team that struggle, that's really struggling to identify, all right, well, what are the other ways that we can play? What can we lean on that's not just high-octane hockey? What are our additional layers? That's what we really need to see from Florida. Maybe they have it in them. Maybe they don't. I don't, I don't know. Again, I think this is one of the really interesting components of this series. And as the cup playoffs continue to play out, I go, can Bobrovsky, can you just rely on him, period, in a game that you're, you get shelled? I don't know. Are you going to get an atrocious air from Mackenzie Weger every single night? A dude who played great in the regular season has been kind of a liability in the postseason? I don't know. Are you going to get Aaron Ekblad getting turned inside out by Nikita Kucherov? Because you need him to be your best defenseman. He is. And if he's getting roasted by Kucherov like that, uh, that's not a good sign. Can you go and dig pucks out of the corner? What's going to happen when their transition opportunities aren't there? Are you willing to dump and chase? Are you willing to just get pucks on net and try to bang home rebounds? Ugly, grubby-ass playoff hockey. Can you do all those things in conjunction with one another? That's what Tampa has mastered. Some games they play are so beautiful, they take your breath away. And other games they play, you go, this was the Dallas Stars, but I tip your, my cap to you because I know you're not going to play like this every night. You do what every game demands. That's how you've won the last two cups. So I'll close the show with my team. Who is at a different phase from Florida? Who is at a different phase from Tampa? The Colorado Avalanche. And this is my own personal belief, and I may be wrong. And if I am, I'll be very sad about it. But I watch this stuff closely, and I'm really tuned into the ways that an individual team is gradually changing. You know, think about these, this weak link side. What's our weakest link? How's a team going to pick at us? Can we only do one thing at a high level? If that's true and a team takes it away, what's going to happen? Colorado's at a phase in their cup contention window, which I think it's just their second year, if you're being honest. I know a lot of people piss on them for losing in game seven of the second round the last three years. Well, three years ago, they were there early. Two years ago, they were completely obliterated by injuries. Last year was the first year that I really truly believed this team could win the Stanley Cup. Right now, as I'm watching Colorado, they're playing... Game two, you will know who has won by the time this is coming out on Friday morning. I'm recording it before game two. But Colorado strikes me as a team that is really grasping this concept from both a team-building standpoint and from an ex execution standpoint. Last year's second-round series against the Vegas Golden Knights, it was, it was the bucket of cold water that every team has to go through at least once, and a lot of times, even more. For Colorado, they were in the Florida phase of things. They were in the early Tampa phase of things. Incredible transition team, so much skill, so much speed. And then suddenly, they're up 2-0 in that series, and it looks like it's going to be easy. And then the next thing you know, they lose game three. They're up by one goal midway through the third period. All they got to do is close out the last 10 minutes, and they're up 3-0 in the series. Vegas storms back, wins that game, wins game four, wins game five, wins game six. So now I'm sitting there, and my head's spinning, and I'm just heartbroken because I go, well, I, thought, well, I thought this was the year. So then I'm starting to think about it from a team perspective and from a championship arc perspective. And Colorado got an answer that season, last year, to what happens when a team that has a lot of skill and a lot of physicality, what happens when they just forecheck the hell out of you and make it hard for you to break out from your own zone and your transition offense dries up? What happens? We got the answer. It was just with the exception of 
the McKinnon line and the McCartes pairing, they were just lost. And there were tur turnovers, terrible turnovers. And there were terrible plays and just Colorado's lack of depth showed. And not having Nazem Kadri there as the second line center because he was suspended for the whole series. It reared its ugly head because it looked like the Avs were back where they were three years ago, where it was the McKinnon line and nobody else was helping. So entering this year, I think Joe Sackick, the general manager, and just the team as a whole, and me as a fan, I think they understood multiple things. Number one is we need more depth. You always need more depth. You always do. Go back to Tampa. The first year they win the cup, one of the main key contributions to that was the accumulation of their third line that was just a complete menace at five on five in the playoffs. Yanni Gord, Barkley Goodrill, Blake Coleman. They got all those people with that specific desire in mind. We already have a ton of high-level skill. None of those players would you point at and say they have the same skill level as Point or Stamkos or Kucherov or Hedman, but they are all incredible players for a playoff-type setting, and they're all very versatile in what they can give you. Number two with Colorado, much like the depth thing, which every team is always searching for. Easier said than done. Number two is just, we need more layers from a playability perspective. It's that versatility. It's that additional ways to win hockey games, especially in the playoffs. Again, a thing that Tampa Bay has mastered over the last two years and change. So now I start to see this over the course of the regular season. And I'm going, okay, I got a good feeling because they're checking the boxes that need to be checked. Kadri, you can't be suspended. That's, let's just start there. But he has his best regular season of his entire career this year. So that second line center spot solidified, great. Valeri Nachushkin, former top 10 pick for Dallas, completely washed out, never did anything for him. The Avs pick him up for nothing. Pennies on the dollar. Just as a reclamation project. I, I honestly didn't even think anything of it when they got him. I'm just like, who did they get? Oh, I kind of remember that guy, but I don't remember him doing one thing. And out of the start, you know, a couple years back, he pops on Ab's fourth line. He's combining with Tyson Jost. And I'm like, this is a great combination. They just go in and they forecheck people and they seem annoying as hell to play against. And even if he just would have been that, I'd be like, yeah, that's, that's, that's a good addition to your hockey team. You can use a player like that. And this year we see him, something clicks. If you want to go back to the Hemingway thing, there's been gradual ways. I would love to hear the gradual ways that Valeri Nachushkin has worked on his game that suddenly were there punching us in the face this year. Because now I'm like, uh, he's one of the better power forwards in the league. He's playing top-line minutes alongside McKinnon and Rantanen, including in the playoffs, so they can bump Lanniscog down to line two, which is another gift. He's scoring 25 goals in the regular season. Like, this is just a really damn good NHL player, and one that makes even more sense in the confines of the playoffs. His skill set is suited for what the playoffs demand. Forechecking, digging pucks out, getting to the net, just driving again and again and again and forcing the issue. That's Valerian Nachushkin. So we have another box. Okay, I, li I really like that. Philip Grubauer, starting goaltender. He leaves. He wants more money. He goes to Seattle. So now they have a big gaping void in net. And I'm like, oh, what are they going to do? The goaltender market seems like it's drying up. The Avs go and trade for Darcy Kemper. It seems like they overpay for him. I'm worried about the price. It's a first rounder and Connor Timmons, a person who already proved he could play defense in the NHL. And Kemper struggles out of the gate. And I'm going, oh boy, this is a nightmare. And then when the calendar turns, Darcy Kemper is one of the very best goaltenders in hockey. And he's continued to be that through the first game of the St. Louis series. Another box checked. Different way of winning. Different layer that's being added on to the thing that we know Colorado will always be good at as long as they have a roster like this. Transition hockey. So then you keep going. And Joe Sackick, again, I think it's just this never-ending chase. Because he's watched Tampa and he goes, you never 
you never cease trying to improve along the margins. Sometimes a player will make an incredible jump like Nachushkin has made or Kadri made. Sometimes you just go, ah, we don't even need something huge. So let's go and trade for a player like Nico Sturm at the deadline. They swap him in for Tyson Jost. He's been great in that fourth line role. He's bigger. He's more physical. Good in the faceoff circle, which I think the avalanche value. He can kill penalties. He doesn't make a lot of mistakes. It's all the things you want on your fourth line in the confines of a playoff series. They go and they trade for Josh Manson. If you think back to that bucket of cold water Vegas series, one of the lasting memories that all Avalanche fans have is Sam Gerrard just plummeting to the bottom of the barrel in that series, especially in game six. And in his defense, he was being dragged there partially by who he had to play with because the Avs had no defensive depth. They were struggling with injuries. Bone Byron was not around. And so they're mixing and matching and they're saying, Gerrard, can you carry Connor Timmins? Can you carry Ryan Graves? Can you carry Eric Johnson? And the answer was no. The answer was no. The answer was no. Vegas feasted on every pairing that was not Makar and Taze. So they go and they trade for Josh Manson from Anaheim, who plays a really physical style of hockey. Who, when you pair him with a player like Gerard, the complementing skills make a hell of a lot of sense. Gerard, the small puck moving transition style player. Manson, the more traditional, I'm going to just bash your head into oblivion if you ever come in my zone. And if you want to go in the corner and try to dig out a puck, I will bury you there. That pairing, you watch game one against St. Louis, and they were the story of the game. On a roster that has so many incredibly gifted players, they were the story of the game. Gerard was the best player on the ice for Colorado. I'm very confident that's the case. Josh Manson was not that far behind. And in an incredible twist, to really perfectly encapsulate how bizarre hockey can sometimes be in a game that the Avalanche did everything under the sun to try and score. They hit five posts. They whiff on two empty nets. They score two additional goals going into overtime, but still they're there in overtime in a game that they outchance St. Louis four to one in a game. They outshoot St. Louis two to one. And who's the person that scores literally the least likely person on the entire Colorado roster. Josh Manson. Great shift from Landis Cog. Manson gets the puck, pump fakes a shooting lane open, puts a wrister on net. Landis Cog puts on the perfect screen. Bennington can't see it. Whizzes right by his ear hole in the back of the net. Just another thing that can be improved along the margins. Now, even without an overtime winner, Manson was great in that game. He did all the things that you want him to do to free up Gerard to do the things that he is best at. Layer upon layer upon layer, right? The last deadline acquisition is one that just... I can't stop raving about. And it's interesting. If I go back to the trade deadline, I was all in on Colorado getting Claude Giroux from Philly. I wanted it so bad. I love him as a hockey player. I think he's awesome. And Colorado was in the mix and apparently Drew didn't want to go there. He had a no trade clause. He wanted to go to Florida. So Colorado apparently offered more for him and they were nixed. So he's going to Florida and Colorado makes these moves. They get Sturm, they get Manson. I'm going, okay, yeah, sure. They make sense, but those are margin plays in a way that Actually, now <laughs> I should have been more excited about because they're really starting to crystallize. But they trade for Arturi Lekkanen from Montreal, who kind of, at the time, was viewed as the consolation prize to Claude Giroux. Oh, okay, sweet. You got Lekkanen, who's a good player, but man, we really wish we could have had Claude Giroux. But then you watch Arturi Lekkanen, and immediately he became one of my favorite players that I've ever watched play hockey. This is in the regular season. Then I watch him in the playoffs through the Nashville series, through game one against St. Louis. And I go, you are the individual player embodiment of what is required in the playoffs. How many different layers are required to win? Because Lekkanen can do everything and anything. He does. 
He can play in transition. He can dig pucks out. He can forecheck the hell out of you. He can backcheck the hell out of you. He can defend. He can play offense. He can scream through the neutral zone and ring one off the post like he did in game one against St. Louis. He can go net front and bang home rebounds like he did two different times against Nashville. He can just be a complete pest on the forecheck again and again and again as he does on 10 shifts per game. You can put him on a line with Kadri and Landis Cog that just seems like hell on earth to play against. A line that makes so much sense in the confines of a playoff series. Again, think back to Gord, Coleman, and Gaudreau. Anytime they were on the ice, you were just like, I would hate being anywhere near this unit. They seem so annoying to play against. It's the same concept. So all these things, you know, acquisitions, people stepping up, all that kind of stuff. As I watch it through the regular season, I really start to get a sense about midway through the season of just, okay, I think it's starting to make sense more. Maybe that means they win the cup this year. Maybe it doesn't. You never know. But I'm starting to watch a hockey team and I'm really starting to watch a hockey team in the playoffs that is comfortable playing any style, anytime. You name it, you know? Special teams battle, great. Colorado, they're comfortable with their penalty kill. They're comfortable with their power play. Oh, goaltending battle, great. More than comfortable. If Darcy Kemper has to face 40 shots tonight, he can steal some games like he did in the regular season for us. Transition game, <laughs> perfect. You're playing right into our strength. You want to play physical? Great. We got a lot of people who are more than willing to do that. Nachushkin, Kadri, Landis Kog, Lekkanen, Manson. Go down the list of all these players that are more than comfortable just going and banging bodies. Pick a style of game. And I think Colorado has built a roster and more importantly, or just as importantly, leaned into the mental side of, hey, whatever each game throws at us, it's going to be different. And as soon as that occurs, we are ready and willing to engage on whatever the terms are. I think that's why this team has so much belief in itself. That's something that really manifests when you watch Colorado play hockey right now. They are in the middle part of their arc between a Florida and Tampa. They're starting to grasp what Tampa grasped two years ago, last year, this year. The thing that every team is searching for as the playoffs grind on. And again, maybe this means they win the cup this year. Maybe it does not. Sometimes this takes a really long ass time. But I think things are starting to click. Layers are necessary in the postseason. Gradual, 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 then sudden. Every game is not going to go according to plan. That's just a fact of life. So when unknown adverse circumstances arise and you can't just lean on the thing that you are best at, how are you able to respond? Thank you for listening to The Chris Rawl Show. This podcast is produced by Weston Tanner. Remember, go and sign up for my newsletter. It's free. It comes out on Wednesday. All you need to do is go to chrisrawl.com, click on the subscribe button, put your email address in, and bam, it's going to be there at the middle of every week. Now, go and enjoy your weekend. It's an incredible time to be alive. PGA Championship, Stanley Cup playoffs, NBA playoffs, go golf, do everything that you want to do, and I'll talk to you on Tuesday. Tuesday.